Hi, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of season one of So You Want to Change the World. My name is Julia Jones, and I am the editor and producer of season one. I am also a 2012 alumna of Thinking Beyond Borders programs. I am really excited to be your interviewer today and turn the tables to interview founder and president Robin Pandoli himself in this episode titled Learning to Change the World. Now I get to speak with Robin directly about this educational institution and how it's working to create meaningful social change. So Robin, tell us a little bit more about Thinking Beyond Borders. Thinking Beyond Borders is an educational institution that was founded in 2007. And we founded the organization on the mission to empower and inspire students to address critical global issues. Now, that mission for us was was founded on the assumption that it, it's not we don't face these big global issues of hunger and poverty and unsustainable practices and um, political and cultural and social oppression, we don't face those things just because there aren't enough people out there trying to do good in the world. But that, in fact, as we look at history, we look at international development, we look at social justice movements, what we find is lots of people who, with good intentions and good technical skills, go out and work hard every day, but to the end of creating more harm than good. We also looked at history and we saw that there were some people that somewhat rare instances of people going out and creating really meaningful change, change that really moved the needle toward equity and justice and sustainability, and that those folks really shared a very specific set of qualities. Thinking Beyond Borders started creating programs in 2007 with the idea that we could create a learning space that students could step into to develop those qualities that would set them apart, not just because they have good intentions and good technical skills, but because they had these other capacities that would ensure that they weren't just going out and creating more harm than good, despite their good intentions. What that really looks like for us is it's one and two semester programs in our gap year programming that take groups of students with really passionate, highly qualified educators and send them out into the world to live in communities abroad, to work alongside local experts and really dive into not just the theoretical and the academic ends of these these key global issues like public health or education or um, sustainability, but also to see how those issues play out in real people's real daily lives um, and see how local actors are working to create change in their own home communities and addressing the economic and the political and the cultural and the social aspects of each of these, these tough global issues. Therefore, we decided to set out and see if we could create programs that would do that. In 2008, we launched our very first program, our very first global gap year program. And at the time, people in the international education field or or even in, in more traditional education looked at us and said, that's really ambitious what you've put together. It was, a, it was an eight-month program, 35 weeks. Um, students, 18 students and three teachers were traveling to nine different countries over eight months um, and studying five different development issues and um, really taking a deep dive into a pretty expansive curriculum. So how did the founding team come together to really not only discuss this, but bring Thinking Beyond Borders into fruition? 
You know, there were there were three of us as founders originally. It was uh, Chris Stockich and Sandy Cooper and myself, and each of us came from different backgrounds. Chris had had worked in um, in student travel previously and before joining our team. Um, and I actually met Chris by working for him one summer with Rustic Pathways in Costa Rica. Um, Sandy Cooper was coming from having spent two years in the Peace Corps in the middle of, on a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific, uh, and then serving as an AmeriCorps um, team leader. So she was really coming from a service learning background. My background was in in my undergrad, I'd studied international development at UCLA, and, and, and I'd done that because I grew up as a save-the-world kind of kid. I, I, I saw a lot of injustice around me, economic and political and cultural injustice, in the community I lived in, in Vallejo, California, um, as a kid. And really always had this sense both from from those surroundings and then also from my parents that I had a real responsibility to make the world a better place. And I I entered my undergrad trying to understand what those bigger problems were so that I could figure out how to contribute to solutions. Um, at the end of my undergrad, I think, uh, you know, some of those realizations about the the need to not just bring more people into the do-gooding world, but to help do-gooders do it better, um, had, had really sunk in for me. And uh, I found my passions and my talents really driving me into the world of education. I worked in public schools for eight years and did just about everything you can do in a public school, um, from coaching to teaching to serving as an administrator, running after school programs, both in urban and, and suburban schools. And Along the way, got a master's in education at Harvard, trying to understand how to use education as a tool for social change, and both from an administrative and a, and a curricular and a pedagogical um, sense. For me, when I met the other two founders and we started having these conversations, it was, you know, personally, it was scary. It was scary to step out of my career into something that we had no funding for, we had no idea how we were going to get it off the ground, and none of us had really started an organization before. At the same time, it was incredibly exciting to me because, you know, traditional education put real limits on what we could do in terms of creating a learning environment that that would lead to the kind of outcomes, learning and growth that we really wanted to see in our students that we felt was crucial to, to us meeting our mission as thinking beyond borders. Um, so that was what that was what really drove me into this was that the gap year space was outside of the K K through 12 world or higher education, which meant that we didn't have the institutional boundaries. We, we didn't have to have our students take standardized tests. We didn't have to do traditional grading. We could create a learning environment that was about the students learning about things that really mattered to them and really mattered to the real world. And they could learn about those things by engaging with them directly rather than just talking about it as, as the, these theoretical issues that happened somewhere else. And so that, that for me was the most exciting part as a founder of, of stepping into this space and, and creating Thinking Beyond Borders and, and all of the learning opportunities that we've been able to create through our programming um, since the founding. So I'm curious if there was a specific moment in your life when you realized that you needed to get away from traditional education and to really start TBB. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I don't know that there was necessarily a moment per se. Um, 
there definitely was a moment when in in early 2007 when you know we'd spent two years the three founders had spent two years developing the idea we we talked about you know who we were going to be as an organization and what our funding was going to look like and what the program was going to be and and we were at that point where each of us had to make the decision to step out of our careers and the other two founders really had to be honest they really had to convince me <laughs> because i was pretty nervous about about stepping away from the school that i was working at at the time uh, the the river valley charter school in in newburyport massachusetts i loved it it was a k through 8 public charter montessori um, i was i was leading the middle school team at the time and we were doing really cool things. And within the institution, you know, of traditional education, we were really pushing boundaries. Um, we had a great school community and, um, and I felt really supported in a lot of ways. At the same time, I then looked at what Thinking Beyond Borders was and realized that TBB had the potential for me to have complete freedom to go out and as an educator create the spaces that I thought we needed and and to help students really find their passions and their direction as agents of change in the world and that that while River Valley is a fantastic community and still is as as an as a school um it, it was still going to be limited in a way that that thinking beyond borders never was as as a learning space and as a teaching space so that that really was the biggest the the biggest turning point for me as i had to step out of what was a a comfortable and established place for me that i could stay for a long time and be and be pretty happy um for the big risk of stepping into what could be you know this idyllic learning and teaching space that that thinking beyond borders was in my mind at that time and you know to be frank it really is now we still get to do some really incredible things that that are really hard to find it's hard to find learning and teaching spaces like this anywhere else in education so why exactly tbb why not something else yeah, that that's a really interesting question. It's one that I've asked myself a lot over the years. I, when I when I put that question in the big picture, I think you know my goal, my personal mission is to go out and, and create a more equitable, just, and sustainable world. And we need to pull lots and lots of different levers. Thinking beyond borders is one of them, right? I mean, there needs to be community organizing. There needs to be political action. There needs to be the right folks running for offices and running businesses and leading PTAs in their local schools. We, we need lots and lots of different things. TBB is never, has never in my mind been the end-all be-all of social impact or social justice work. It's really one thing. The role that I think Thinking Beyond Borders plays is that we're finding those students who have a real passion and and a real desire to do this type of work, to do change-making work, and are probably headed down that path anyway. And we're providing a space for them to come and develop those capacities that will make them exceptional agents of change for years to come. And that's in all types of fields. And so I, I don't know a lot of other spaces, educational or otherwise, in the social impact world that are doing that. Most of them are out there saying, great, you want to do social enterprise or you want to do social innovation or you want to be a doctor to work in public health. We're going to help you develop all the technical skills you need to do that stuff well. 
But what, again, what we saw when we looked at history was that great agents of change, yes, they had good technical skills, but they had these other capacities that really made the difference. And so that, that for me, I think is why TBB is different and why we play a crucial role in the broader ecosystem of, of individuals and organizations out trying to make a difference in the world. So who were those historical impact leaders and what capacities did they possess? So I, th- I think there are a lot of those leaders, and there are some names that we all really know, a, a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi or a Mandela or, or even a Muhammad Yunus. There are also lots of folks that we don't know as well, Ella Baker, um, Septima Clark, um, and, and then and then lots of folks who never made it even to the national consciousness in, in, because they worked in their local communities, they worked in their local PTAs or, or in local government or even just within their families. They shared... As we looked historically at their lives, they shared three capacities that really stood out. One was that they had a sense of purpose and direction that was rooted in a critical analysis, not just of the world, but of themselves. They, they charted a course for themselves around their talents and passions, but also with an understanding of what their beliefs were and that they critically analyzed those beliefs as they exercised them in the world. The result of that was that they were constantly shifting course just a little bit every time they had an experience in the world to make sure that their actions actually aligned with their beliefs and that their beliefs were things that were constantly being revised and questioned as they engaged with a dynamic world. The second was that they exercised humble but powerful learning, meaning that they didn't just go into the world looking for answers and wielding those answers as tools, but rather they went out into a dynamic world looking for understanding. They did that by asking questions, honestly engaging in those questions personally, even the hard questions about who am I and, and how do I relate to these issues? How does my privilege play into these issues? And then inviting other people into those questions with them in a humble way all with the goal of developing as much understanding about the issue as they can so that they can then ask a deeper question that takes them further into their understanding um, to inform their actions and, and the ways that communities can come together to solve these problems. The final capacity is something we call higher order empathy. We talk a lot about empathy as being able to, to see people that are hurting and help them or, or listen to people that have different beliefs than we do. Higher order empathy is when you see somebody that's doing something harmful to you, your family, your friends, and not hating them, finding love for them as a human, believing in their capacity to still do good in the world, and taking it on as partly our responsibility to help create a path for that person to become a productive part of this community, working toward equity and justice and sustainability in the future. Those were the capacities that really made the difference and set great agents of change apart from those who simply had good technical skills and good intentions. None of those capacities come easily, and the truth is we don't do a very good job of supporting students in developing those capacities in traditional education. Sometimes we do in our faith communities, sometimes we do in our families, sometimes we do in our schools, but... TBB was established to get really good at developing those capacities intensively at a really crucial moment of our lives as we're emerging into adulthood. So if these capacities are what you envision for all TBBers to have at the end, what parts of the pedagogy and curriculum and parts of the program are built in to ensure that this is something that they're learning along the way? 
Yeah. So this is something I could talk about for a long time because I, I love this conversation. There are a couple of things that I think are really important to note related to developing these capacities, right? One is that there's intellectual work to do here. And that intellectual work is both about thinking broadly and deeply about each of these these issues like public health or education as a tool for social change or you know sustainability and environmental resources but we also need to think deeply about questions related to what types of outcomes actually do represent meaningful change so one of the core questions we ask within the curriculum from the very beginning of the program to the very end and many times throughout is what is development? What are we what are we trying to achieve? And it's a question that's rarely asked in the world of development among even among the great experts of development around the world. You don't find anything close to a consensus. And Part of the reason why is that there are lots and lots of base level assumptions that that relate to our core beliefs as individuals about what the world is, how it works, how it should be, and what each of us can do to try to to try to change it in positive ways. Our curriculum and our pedagogy in part are about, yes, looking at the outside world and understanding it better, but then throughout every seminar, through every reading, through every journaling exercise, we're pushing students to look inward as well at the assumptions and the values that are shaping their understanding of of, of what's happening around them and about who they are and how they relate to it. That constant process of inquiry that's both external and internal is absolutely fundamental to what we do. And the result is that you see students coming out on the other side saying, you know, I may not necessarily be starting college knowing exactly what my major is going to be, but I am starting college with these burning questions, these burning questions in my chest that matter to the world and they matter to me. And I now realize that my college experience is not about getting more grades so that I can go on to my next degree or my career. It's about diving into these questions that are really meaty and meaningful and and really chasing those those things passionately so that I can better understand the world so I can go out and be more effective at creating change. So I'm one of over 275 alumni who started their journey to develop these same capacities that you're talking about while on TBB. We're all over the world. We're in college and grad school and in in the workforce. What exactly did you envision alumni doing when you were founding TBB? In my wildest dreams, I envisioned you all doing what you're doing today. What I really envisioned was young people with passion going out into their higher ed careers, into the the professional world, and into their communities, and really engaging deeply in the things that they think matter the most and finding ways to leverage their personal talents and their personal passions to create the most change that they can while also getting to the end of each day feeling fulfilled by that process. You know, I, I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges of working in social justice spaces or in, or in social impact spaces is that it's draining work. And if you start from a position of, I'm going to sacrifice everything that is me for the cause, you get really burned out very quickly. And so what's interesting to me in, in each of the episodes we've recorded so far and we've shared with, with our audience um, and all of the other alumni that I know is that 
you know, we're not all necessarily smiling at every minute of every day, but it, it really comes through that there are a lot of folks who are really passionate, really excited and fulfilled by their path and who continue to ask hard questions of themselves. They're asking hard questions of the world. Their TBB experience lives on for them in their day to day in the sense that they they came out of TBB having created a new way of walking their path. Those were really my wildest dreams of what I could have hoped for. And um, I can't tell you how humbling and exciting it is to be a part of this community of teachers and students and parents and such that that now gets to watch each of these alumni go off and do this incredible work. So coming from traditional education, I'm wondering why this idea of a gap year, why the year between high school and college that you and the founders thought would be the most important to address this moment of transition when we're going from our our homes and our families off to college and into adulthood is is a huge moment of transition in our lives. Not only are we geographically separating in, in many cases from our families and, and our hometowns, but we're stepping out of, of our early adolescence into late adolescence and adulthood. Our brains are developing new capacities for critical thinking and something called metacognition where you can you take the big step back and you can see dynamic systems playing out and and you can place yourself within those systems even when you're stepped back it, it gives you new perspective it gives you new understanding and new capacities to think about yourself in the world it's also a time where naturally speaking in our lives in this developmental stage we're naturally predisposed to wanting to ask ourselves hard questions about what we believe and why we believe it and how that shapes our understanding of the world. All of that to me means that there's an enormous amount of shift happening in students at this period of time. By creating a program that's specifically designed for those students at that age, we've been able to hone the support we give to students, the challenges we give to students academically, personally, socially, um, We've been able to hone a program that's specifically designed to support those students to go through these changes into adulthood. That, to me, means that we're going to be seeding the world with young professionals, young you know, college-age students, and then eventually young professionals and, and seasoned professionals who really have their feet on the ground in the work that they're doing and understand how they're contributing and how they can help other people contribute to these change efforts. And it can be truly transformative. And you know that millennials are always looking for transformational experiences. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because I actually think that millennials get a really bad rap. In, in part because I think, you know, in, in the popular conversation today, millennials are talked about in, in a dismissive way in terms of all the things that are wrong with millennials. One, this is, a, this is an age-old thing. That we always talk about young people in demeaning ways. Two is that millennials are exactly who they've been raised to be. And so, you know, there are positives and negatives with every generation in, in the difference and differences in any generation. But to simply be dismissive is um, demeaning to the millennials themselves. And two, it it's a way of, of abdicating our responsibility as adults and mentors and educators in the lives of young people. If 
we want to create young adults and, and adults who are out in the world and are really well suited to contributing to workspaces and being leaders in their communities and all of these different things, then we have to we have to create learning and growth spaces where they can develop those capacities to do those things. As I listen to all of these different episodes that we've created in in um, in recent months, I hear lots of examples of millennials who are out there doing incredible work and they're doing it with enormous humility and consciousness and that that really runs counter to the dominant narrative of, of who your generation, Julia, is, is said to be. I agree. I think we do have some redeeming qualities beyond just Snapchat, avocado toast and never buying a home. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody has to say it. <laughs> So, Robin, if there's one thing that many people or most people don't know about TVB, uh, what would it be? So what I think I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear me say is that um, at Thinking Beyond Borders, we don't particularly love the gap year. And that sounds really counterintuitive, but but here's what I mean is that we're really passionate about working with students in the transition to college. We, we think that's really important. And we've even started offering programs. Um, our, our impact fellowships, our summer impact fellowships are designed for undergraduates and graduate students who are interested in developing leadership capacities in organizations that work for social impact. But you know what? While our focus really is on working with students in the college transition, there's a real problem with the gap year world, which is that there's very little access to it. It's primarily, as you, as you look at the statistics, it's primarily upper middle class white kids. Um, and there are two reasons for that. One is that most families in this country can't afford college, period. So that's a real problem is the cost of gap year. The other, the other limiting factor for people being able to access gap years is that we live in a culture in the United States that says you don't ever get off the train to college. Uh, and and once you do, you're at real risk of not going to college. Studies show us that that is both true and not true. Students who take intentionally built gap year programs that are really thinking carefully about how to help students learn and grow and prepare for fulfilling and, and meaningful higher ed experiences, that those students, you know, 90 plus percent of them go on to college. But there is a real reality that for students who do take time off after high school but don't do something that is helping them prepare for college in an intentional way, they do run a real risk of not either going to college or finishing college. And that risk is really high. So all of that is to say, I don't, I don't love gap year. What I really do love is the idea of higher education looking at the gap year space as a lab space as a space where educators have been working for decades now to develop more intentional transition processes for students to go from high school to college effectively. We're working at Thinking Beyond Borders hard to find those partner universities, colleges and universities out there who are interested in doing that with us and in, in collaborating with us to develop new programs that will specifically help students transition to that particular school in a way that's going to be highly effective, both in terms of preparing students to succeed and be leaders on campus and, and prepare for careers effectively during their undergrad, not just during grad school but also to make it accessible so that any student who can figure out a way to pay for college should 
as part of that college experience, have this type of learning and growth available to them. It shouldn't be in addition to the cost of college. That's that's probably the secret that most people don't know about thinking beyond borders, um, but that we're we're working hard at that right now. So, Robin, if I were a university looking to have this sort of experience for their freshmen incoming students um, or even offer it as an option, is that something TBB would look at partnering with? Absolutely. If there are colleges and universities out there that are in our audience and are interested in chatting about how to do this, either through partnership with Thinking Beyond Borders or simply, uh, you know, in in chatting about what lessons we can share with them as they do this work on their own, we're really open to that. That's that's for us. That is advancing our mission is to support others to do great educational work as well. So I have a hard question for you, something that we talk about a lot as students of TBB. What is your definition of development? Yeah, so, you know, it's not just a technical question. It's easy to start by saying, well, it's about roads and schools and clinics and healthcare and all of that. Um, it is about all those things. But, you know, the deeper we dig into this question of what is development, one of the things that that has really struck me as it continues to evolve in my thinking as I ask this question over and over and over again is that it's also a spiritual question. It's it's about and I don't mean to sound new agey but you know because it's I don't think it's that but it's a it's a question that if we ask it if we take it deep enough into our assumptions it's about what do you think the world should be? What is what do you think humanity's greatest potential looks like, and what does it mean in if you're someone believe, who believes you have one go at, at life? What does it mean to contribute to that in meaningful ways? What does it mean to relate to others in a way that is, for me, I think I think humanizing relationships across boundaries that prevent us from having humanizing relationships is a big part of what development is across economic boundaries and cultural boundaries and social boundaries and political boundaries, that, that creating those humanizing relationships is a crucial part of, of what it means to do development work, whether you're talking in a local community and, you know, even in your own family or your school or whatever it may be, um, to, you know, the U.S.-Chinese relationship, trade relationship or political relationship or whatever it may be. Um, that in in a lot of ways, yes, it's a technical question, but it, and, and an economic question, and all of that. But it is also a spiritual question of who are you, who do you want to be, and how do you want to contribute to creating the greatest existence we can create here on in our time together on Earth. Um, it it feels really, in some ways, it felt really big to come to that that place in my thinking about what development is to think about it as a spiritual question but in some ways it also feels like there's an essentialism to it that it, it for me it has felt really liberating to get away from i have to find the economic indicators or i have to find the you know the the cultural indicators or the political indicators that we have achieved quote-unquote development or we're ch- achieving development and to say that you know, yes, all of those factors matter, but those are all measures of ultimately those are all measures of how good we are at creating humanizing relationships with one another. And that, that development is about that. Um, I, I, that's where my thinking is today and ask me tomorrow and I'll be somewhere else. (laughs) It'll keep evolving. 
Yeah. I mean, as a student, we talked about this all the time. And I think one of the big realizations that I had was coming back to the United States and always holding the U.S. as this sort of standard in other countries, as I was brought up to do through my education and realizing that with domestic issues and politics and race and gender and everything that the U.S. isn't developed either. Um, and I'm curious if you think that development is a goal or a process or if it can truly be reached at all. Yeah, I think I think development is a process, not a goal. Um, you know that it is. It's about how we walk together as humans, and and you know if you're how we walk with you know on this earth with all of the other things that live and don't live on this earth. You know, it's about relationships in my mind, um, and that I can't think of a time when development quote unquote development has ever been achieved when, when I could ever think of a community that is developed. Um, you know, when Dr. King as TBB alumni can definitely tell you is one of my great heroes. And in his last speech, um, the night before he was assassinated, he, he talked about, um, that, that he felt that God had allowed him to go up to the mountaintop and look over and see the promised land. And, in in other writings of his and, and in analysis others have done and, and this really resonates with me what he meant was not that he looked got to the mountaintop and looked over and saw heaven or providence or you know humans peacefully coexisting for for all time but that for him getting to the mountaintop was about seeing millions of people all over the US all over the world intentionally stepping out in protest of injustice, of dehumanizing relationships, political, economic, social, cultural, and really insisting that others see them as humans and pushing themselves to see even the worst aggressors as humans as well. And, and reaching out their arms and saying, you can join this humanizing community, this humanizing movement. That, to me, is about a process of of development. That is... I think what Dr. King was saying was he looked out and he saw a process of development. He saw a process of, of people coming together in loving and supporting and trusting ways, um, even when there were boundaries to doing all of, you know, very severe boundaries to doing all of those things. Um, and that, that to me is really emblematic of development. So now for the last question that we've been asking at the end of every episode. What is the most important question you're asking yourself right now? Yeah, there there are a lot of big questions out there for me. And I think one of the ones that's the most pressing right now in, in this political moment and this moment in, in our history, particularly here in the United States, is what can we do? What can we do to bridge the divide? We've got a huge divide politically, but we also have we have growing divides in our messaging about who's right and who's wrong about all types of different things. And I think that that scares me in the sense that it if at the moment it feels as though we're moving further and further from the ability to come together in humanizing ways, to build relationships with one another. When in fact these the the different factions that we're in if we get down to the real lived experience of each of us as humans 
we have pretty similar experiences. You know, about 98% of our experience on a day-to-day at its core is similar. We each need health care. We each need food. We each need security. We each need education. We want fulfillment. We each want to do meaningful work. There are real differences. It is There is a very real difference to be a person of color in this country rather than being white uh, or being perceived as white. There are real differences to being of e- different economic classes and, and the amount of, of financial wealth you have. You know, there, there are differences in terms of our genders and all of that. But, but how do we come together around our core values is a real question for me. And, and you know, it, it, historically speaking, moments when communities and, and countries have been this divided, there have been one of two things that have brought people together. One is a really concerted, intentional effort to organize and find unity by leaning into those shared values that we all have, or the vast majority of us have. The other thing is disaster. And, you know, at the moment, I find myself working hard in our work at Thinking Beyond Borders to try to spur the development of that movement where people come together around shared values. But I also find myself wondering if the disaster is looming and and when it's going to come. Um, And are we going to be able to come together as a community in the wake of that disaster? Or is that that disaster going to be so big that that it really changes us forever as as communities and as a nation? And that's scary, but that feels real to me at the moment. I should also say that you know that sounds really dark, but I would I would say that I'm actually really hopeful. You know, I, I listen to these these six previous episodes in this season, and I find an enormous amount of hope with young professionals who are going out into the world asking themselves in the world hard questions, but getting out of bed to do it over and over again every day and do it in with, with passion and with intentionality, with humility, um, and really contributing, contributing to the way that we talk about political issues with, with Mariana's work as a journalist, contributing to the lives of folks who are incarcerated, who need humanizing relationships across boundaries that, that often probably to them and both both to them and to to Anthony felt as though they were boundaries that they couldn't cross you know those those are just two of the examples but but those are examples to me of people really doing the hard work to figure out how we how we bridge the gap that is really hopeful to me and and I try to lean into those stories and find those folks in the world both in the TBB community and outside the TBB community and be supportive of them in any way that I can be uh, personally and professionally so I, I you know I'm I'm nervous but I'm also hopeful I, I think there's there are real incredible acts of, of humanism out there in the world yeah I'm really glad that you added that at the end just about how hopeful you are I feel the same way and so fortunate to be a part of this community and something that we can attribute to you as creating this and helping to found it. So thank you, Robin. I appreciate you joining our podcast for this. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I, let me say one thing in, in response to that closeout, which is just that, you know, I'm very, I'm very proud of my founder title at TBB, but it's, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that this, this really is a community that's been created from the ground up by lots and lots and lots of people, um, students and families who, who stepped into this, this ambitious programming and then homestay families around the world and partners around the world and, and, um, funders who helped found the founding process and, and helping us 
keep our feet on the ground when we needed that help. Um, all of that has been crucial. This is, I may hold the title of founder, but the truth of the matter is, is that this has always been a community effort and, and I'm proud to be part of it. Thanks for joining us today, Robin. It was really great to have you close out the very last episode. And to our audience, thank you for listening to our first season of So You Want to Change the World. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the episodes in season one to hear more about the incredible social impact work of our TBB alumni. We'd also really love to hear from you. Feel free to get in touch or leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. You can also find more information about this episode on our blog at thinkingbeyondborders.org slash podcast. We'll be back soon.